said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. Our topic tonight is, Is Eternal Torment Real? We've already discovered in our previous presentations, we looked at the subject of death, and we saw that when a person dies, they sleep in the grave, and they wait for the voice of the Lord. The righteous go to heaven, and the Bible says that, as it is in John chapter 3, verse 16, where Jesus says the wicked perish, as uh, we read in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 where the Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death. We know that the wicked perish. Um, When we did our study on the millennium, on the 1,000 years, we saw that at the end of the 1,000 years we have the resurrection of condemnation and then the wicked are destroyed and then God creates a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So we we know those facts. We, We know those from the doctrines that we've studied so far. But there are verses in the Bible which seem to allude to the fact that the lost, the wicked, are punished forever and ever and ever. But when you study the Bible correctly and you compare Scripture with Scripture, you just see that that is not the case. In fact, the Bible is very clear that the wicked do not suffer on for eternity. In fact, God does punish the wicked, but it's completed and it's done and then God creates a new heaven and new earth. Now, this teaching uh, which infiltrated Christianity in the 4th century, that's when this teaching actually first entered Christianity and it taught that there's some sort of enjoyment that God receives from the suffering of men, women, boys and girls. That somehow God delights in that, that, that heaven delights in the suffering of the wicked. Mind you, uh, the church also taught that uh, children, while they didn't go to a place called hellfire, they certainly taught and teach today that, uh, and have taught that children go to a place called limbo, particularly for those children who have not been baptised. But it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter virtually what denomination. There are one or two exceptions. But most denominations teach that when the wicked, with, when, with the rejection of God by the wicked, they are punished in a eternal flames for eternity. But when we trace the history of this teaching, I can assure you that it does not originate in the Bible. It's not part and parcel of the teachings of Jesus Christ, nor the teachings of any of the disciples at all. And as I said, it came into the church in the fourth century, and it came in due to the work of this man here on the screen. His name is Tertullian, and he was an African, North African theologian of the Christian church, but he was heavily influenced by the Platonic schools of theology, uh, particularly in Alexandria and the like. So he adopted, he embraced, if you like, the Platonic thought that the wicked are punished in a place called Tartarus, and there they are cleansed and they are purified. This is where 
where we get the teaching of limbo from, but then there's the others who are tortured and on and on and on as a result of the life that they've lived and this, um, uh, this life here. So this is where the teaching came from. It didn't actually come from a direct command or teachings from the Bible or the Old Testament. And in fact, some of the articles of faith in many of the leading denominations today also support what I've shared with you now. For example, if we were to go to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it says this, the church professes her faith in the Athanasian Creed, the fourth century AD, that they have done good shall go into life everlasting. Now, Athanasia, um, uh, this man Athanasius, he was another believer in this doctrine of Tertullian, but uh, I don't want you to think that I made a mistake in quoting Tertullian earlier because I didn't. Uh, this is another theologian, very notable, prominent theologian of the fourth century. And it says this, the church professes her faith in the Athanasian Creed, the fourth century AD, that they that have done good shall go into life everlasting and they that have done wickedly shall go where shall go into done evil shall go into everlasting fire the church expressly teaches the eternity of the pains of hell as a truth of faith which no one can deny or call in question without manifest heresy now notice what it says in the catholic encyclopedia you can check this yourself it says the church expressly teaches the turn the eternity of pains of hell as a truth of of faith. So this is part of the creed. If you don't believe this, you cannot ex be accepted into the Catholic Church, so to speak, that you believe and Christians believe and the uh, articles of faith of the Roman Catholic Church include this hideous doctrine. And in fact, it's not only the Roman Catholic Church, it's every major denomination, except for the exception of one or two. And they actually teach this abominable torturing work of God, God is carrying on now, even as I speak to you. Last week, when we studied the topic of the, the fire going out, and the previous week, when we looked at the thousand years, there was a text that we read. I didn't, I didn't rest on it too much. I didn't spend a lot of time with it, but I'm going to bring it up again, because this has led people to believe that, in fact, yes, the Bible supports the idea that the wicked are tortured for eternity. And it says this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It says the wicked, those people whose names were not found in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. But does this mean that the people cast into the lake of fire burn on and on and on? Are they tortured in an everlasting hell fire? Is that what that text says there? Well, it doesn't actually say that, does it? Does it actually say that people are burning now? No, it doesn't say that either. I also highlighted a verse in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, a couple of weeks ago. And I said this, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the first point that I want to make here is that it tells us the devils and the, his angels or the devil and the demons are cast into the lake of fire. In the Christian world today,
today, the teaching is that Satan is outside tormenting. His demonic minions are also tormenting the wicked in hellfire for eternity. The Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible actually says that they're the devil himself and that the demons are also cast into that lake of fire. Now, we saw two weeks ago that the fire goes out. Isn't that the case? We saw the fire goes out. So when the term here uh, forever and ever comes up in this verse, it mustn't, must be referring to something quite different to the way we understand it today. Because in fact, when you study the Bible, you see that that phrase forever and ever in certain contexts actually has a limited period of time. And the same applies here in this passage here. Now, what about the doctrine of purgatory you know this idea that um, people are cleansed in fire and ice Uh, it's a real place in the Christian world it's a place of cleansing in fact half of the Christian world actually believes this terrible terrible teaching it's a place where men and women boys and girls in fact also who are guilty of mortal sin are cast down to uh, purgatory and there they are cleansed with fire with ice with cold and uh, once they're purified and with the assistance of the prayers of the saints on earth God's faithful people and also with the paying of certain amounts of money to assist in the elevation if you like of those people from purgatory they can be freed and can attend and enjoy uh, heavenly joys with the righteous thereon in but it's still there It's still taught today. But where does it come from? It comes from paganism. It comes from uh, Greek philosophy. Now, when we study the Bible, I've always said to you, the truth has nothing to fear from investigation. Isn't that the case? And this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of these texts which seem to imply that the wicked are being punished now or being tortured now. But as we study them closer, we're going to see the opposite is actually true. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to ask for God's blessing upon us one more time. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you that we have this time to open your holy word. I pray for an extra measure of your spirit to rest upon us and help us to grasp the deep thoughts and also the deep truths of your word in the name of Jesus Christ I pray amen all right now let's begin let's begin do you know the Bible knows no such place as purgatory it doesn't know any such place of hell Nevertheless, this teaching continues to persist within the Christian world today. In the major denominations and and major parachurches in the world today, independent groups within the world. In fact, many have used this teaching of eternal burning hell to scare people into the kingdom. Have any of you been recipients of that? Okay, I can see some names here, at least under the lights. I can't see who's beyond the lights there. But certainly, uh, this is a teaching that pervades all Christianity today. And it's had an adverse effect on a person's understanding of who God is. Because think about this. If it's true that God delights in the torture of the wicked, then what does this say about the character and the person of God? What does it say about the character and person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? That they're vindictive, that they're capricious, that they're vengeful. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. I want you to notice a quote. Uh, This is from an American theologian. His name is Samuel Hopkins. He says this. 
He says, the smoke of their torment shall ascend up forever in the sight of the blessed before their eyes. This display of divine character and glory will be in favor of the redeemed and most entertaining. I want to pause before I go to the next page here. It says that the smoke and the torture, if you like, of the wicked uh, is a display of divine character and glory. So somehow the torture of the wicked uh, is meritorious to the character of God. And then it says, we'll be in favor of the redeemed. In other words, God's people will find enjoyment and what's that last word on the bottom or that third last word on the bottom line there? Entertainment. So not only are the, the, the righteous going to find some sort of demonic satisfaction to see the wicked tortured according to Samuel Hopkins but they're all going to they're also going to experience it in a form of entertainment can you imagine such a thing how terrible and then he goes on to say the highest pleasure to those who love God. So it's going to be the highest pleasure to God's people. Should the eternal torment and fires be extinguished, it would in great measure put an end to the happiness and the glory of the blessed. Dr. Hopkins says here, the punishment of the wicked is going to be the major entertainment for the righteous when they're in heaven. And then if the fires were extinguished, then all purpose, of, all purpose and joy in heaven would be extinguished with it. Can you imagine? I mean, how, how demonic is that teaching itself? Here's another quote. Uh, this is actually from a book that uh, more than half the Christian world will be aware of, and it's called Purgatory by a man by the name of Excess Shoup, and he says this. He says, One is a dark and gloomy dungeon. Remember, his book is entitled Purgatory. One is a dark and gloomy dungeon where the damned are continually tormented by evil spirits and by a fire that is never extinguished. This place, which is hell, so properly called. You see, a large percentage of Christians are familiar with this book, but also the concept of the eternal punishment of the wicked. Well, let's find out what the Bible actually says on this subject. Let's examine the passages where this comes up very closely and compare scripture with scripture. Now the first passage we're going to look at is found in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 40 and 41 into 42. Here Jesus gives the parable of the tares and the wheat but Jesus says this, therefore as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire so it will be at the end of this age. Wait a moment. Did Jesus say that the wicked are burning now? Because the phrase there, tears are gathered, that's a reference to the wicked. Uh, Is it referring to the wicked burning now? No, it doesn't say that. It actually says this will be at the end of the age. Jesus himself said it's not happening now, yet we have churches today teaching that the wicked are being uh, punished now. They're being tortured now. That's not my teaching. That's, That's what many denominations teach today. So it will be at the end of the age, said Jesus. So already we know that this teaching current in Christianity, that the wicked are tortured now, it's not consistent with the scripture. Jesus then says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. Now this is talking about the second coming here, as we know. And we continue reading, And shall cast them in, 
into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now we know that at the time of Christ's second coming, the sheep and the goats are separated, so to speak. We know that the tares and the wheats are separated. We spoke about this when we looked at the subject of the second coming. We discussed this when we looked at the subject of what happens when a person dies. We looked at the subject when we spoke about the thousand years and also does the fire go out. We know when Christ returns, those who are alive and who've rejected God, that last generation, the Bible says that they are completely destroyed. And that's all that Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about anything else. But when does it happen? Well, we already know that Jesus says that this happens at the end of this age. You see at the bottom there of that verse, at the end of the age. So are the wicked burning now? Well, the obvious answer is no, they're not. And in fact, uh, the Bible makes it clear that this doesn't happen until the end of the age or the end of this world. The Apostle Peter also said exactly the same thing. He said in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. Now, Peter is talking about the people at the end of the thousand years at the resurrection of condemnation. And he says that there is a day reserved. Did you get that? There is a day reserved of the judgment to be punished. So the day is coming. It's future. It's not happening now at the time which Peter wrote. And it still applies to us now. The unjust will be punished at the time of the resurrection of condemnation at the end. Those people who have remained in the graves. Now, I want you to think about the, this, this teaching. We've already seen now. We could actually close our meeting now. You know that, don't you? We could actually close, pull down the blinds, all go home now because we've covered a few verses which clearly challenge this teaching and have made it very clear that this teaching prominent Christianity is not there. But the trouble is that there are so many people who believe this teaching and they believe that God relishes this idea of eternal torment and as I've said in the past every false teaching that you find in the Christian world in some way or another reflects badly on the character of God so there are four assertions that the Bible denies one that God relishes the punishment of the lost two the lost are being tortured now and endlessly Three, Satan is demons are doing the tormenting. And four, eternal fire is real. Let's study what the Bible says now. We're going to go back to the Old Testament book of Job as we deal with these um, uh, statements that I've made on this slide here in Job chapter 20. Remember, the book of Job was written 1,500 years before the time of Christ. And we read this, For the wicked are reserved for the day of what? Wait a moment, didn't we just read this earlier in Peter? About 1540 or 50 years later, the Apostle Peter said exactly the same thing. Peter said there's a day reserved. Here we have Job inspired by God or Moses inspired by God quoting the words of Job. He says, for the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be bored out on the day of wrath. They shall be bored out on the day of that wrath. This sounds like the resurrection of the wicked at the end of the thousand years. Wouldn't you agree? See, there's harmony, there's consistency throughout the Bible. Does this passage say that the wicked are being punished now? 
No, it does not. Does it say they go into everlasting punishing? No, it doesn't say anything of, 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 of at all. All through the Bible, we read that God has reserved a day in which the wicked will be punished, in which sinners will be dealt with, and that day is still future. This is the universal teaching of the Bible. When you think about it, and I've spoken about this before, It doesn't matter what a person's done, but there's no judge, there's no magistrate, no matter how corrupt, avaricious those people may be, there's no judge, there's no magistrate in the land that would put somebody in prison for 25 or 30 years and then later hear their case. There would be an outcry against the judicial system and nor does God. This idea that God is torturing the wicked now, but as we read these Bible passages, we see that there's a judgment in the future. How can that be? The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that the wicked sleep. They wait. They have their day in court where they're judged by God prior to the second coming of Christ. Then they have their second day in court when they're judged by their peers. We would say the jury, if you like. And then after the jury has made its decision, after the way has been made clear to execute a judgment, then we have the resurrection of the wicked at the end of the thousand years. Let's go to the last book of the Bible now. This is found in Revelation chapter 20 verse 12 and remember at the end of the thousand years we saw this and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and the books plural were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works and the things which were written in the book here in vision The Apostle John says that he sees the wicked whose number is as the sand of the sea. They come before the great throne of God. Remember the new Jerusalem has descended down from God out of heaven. And the Bible says the books are opened. And then we read that the wicked confess their sins to the glory of God. They identify that Jesus is Lord and then fire comes down from God out of heaven. That's the end time judgment. That's when the judgment is executed upon the wicked. But remember in Revelation 20 verse 15, it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was what? Cast into the lake of fire. After the judgment, the wicked are punished. The judgment doesn't happen until at the end of the thousand years. But will they burn on and on and on and on? Revelation 21, verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolatries, idolaters. Uh, let's just pause for a moment. This is identifying those people who are going to be uh, found wanting of God's grace at the end of the thousand years. It says the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all lies shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Does it say there that they're punished on and on and on and on? It doesn't say that. It identifies it as the second death. Now, to experience the second death, a person has to die how many times? 
twice. To experience the second death, a person also has to live. How many times? They've got to live twice. Now in the Bible, we know there are books. There's a book of remembrance. We spoke about that a couple of weeks ago. There's a book of life, which has the names of the righteous in it. And then there are the books that contains the words, uh, sorry, the deeds and the actions of the wicked. And that's the standard by which the righteous during the thousand years judge God's decisions uh, in that time of the uh, post-advent judgment. But to experience the second death, a person has to die twice. In this life, everybody dies once, except for those who will be alive at the second coming of Christ. But when the resurrection comes, the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in there at the resurrection of life. But at the end, at the resurrection of condemnation, the wicked are resurrected again to the second, to a second life. And then when the jury has sat When the decision is made, then each person will be punished according to the scripture. I'm talking about the wicked now, but it's not going to be a one size fits all because in fact, the Bible teaches that there are different different measures of punishment meted out against the wicked. If we go to the book of Luke, the apostle Luke had a lot to say about this subject uh, found in Luke chapter 12, verse 47. Here we read, and that servant which knew his Lord's will. Now, when I said Dr. Luke had quite a bit to say. In fact, Luke is remembering what Jesus said on this subject. So these are the words of Jesus. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with what? Many stripes. So the person who knew God's will and did not do it, that person will be beaten, we punish with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes. So in other words, these people have been ignorant of, um, of God's specific requirements, but they've done those things uh, requiring them to be punished by God. It says, thou shall be beaten with few stripes. So we have some people beaten with many stripes and some people beaten with few stripes. For unto whoever much is given of him shall uh, much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more you see Luke talks about or in the book of Luke we read that the wicked are punished with different measures of of uh, punishment and it's only fair that some people will be punished quite a bit and others will be punished less but the Bible talks about this subject of eternal fire but does it go on and on and on and on No, it doesn't. We get that from what we've just read in the book of Luke, the words of Jesus, because the Bible also talks in Revelation 20 verse 14 about the second death. Now, despite the fact that some churches continue to preach this, despite the preponderance of evidence that we see in the Bible, this whole idea that the wicked are suffering now, the Bible is really clear. In fact, it's so simple, and I've said this before, even a child can understand this material. For example, if we go to the Old Testament book of Malachi, in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1, we read this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Now, what is coming? 
Did it say eternal punishment is coming? Didn't say that. It says there's a day coming. You see the consistency within the scripture. For behold, a day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly shall be like stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. Now, when you burn something up, how much is left of it? nothing is there when something's burned up it's completely destroyed the day which is coming shall burn them up says the lords that will leave them neither root nor branch and you shall tread down the wicked for they shall be what they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet so the under inspiration the prophet malachi says that the wicked are going to be reduced to ashes does it say that they're tortured on and on and end it doesn't say that at all See, the Bible's really clear. It makes it quite plain to us. You don't have to be a a, a theologian to understand this material. Language could not be clearer uh, to describe the fate of the wicked. The Bible says that there's a day coming. Stop. The Bible says that they'll be burned up. Stop. The Bible says that they shall be reduced to ashes. It's clear. The wicked are not punished on and on and on. And in verse 3, we are told, as I said before, that they are completely reduced to ashes and then the fires go out when there's nothing left. By the way, what what does the expression forever and ever mean in the Bible? Because we do read that. We read that expression. We read the expression in a number of places, not not in many, but in a few places. That expression, forever and ever, what does that mean to us today? Well, to us today, it actually means that things will go on and on and on and on and never cease. But was that the same way the Bible writers understood the word or the phrase forever and ever? And I'm going to say to you, no, it does not. Because we've actually seen that it's very clear in the scripture that the wicked are not punished on and on and on and on. There's a day. So the corollary being that the wicked are not punished forever and ever and ever. That's just as plain and as simple as that. Uh, in fact, if we were to go to Jude 7, it helps us in our understanding of this phrase forever and ever. In Jude 7, we read this. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, is it telling us that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is burning now because after it all it says that they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire but is Sodom and Gomorrah burning now it's clearly not in fact if we were to move on to another book in the New Testament we actually see exactly the same thing when Sodom was destroyed when Gomorrah was destroyed they were completely destroyed they were reduced to ashes but the reality is and we understand that now and I've actually been in the region I've actually walked the ground where people say that Sodom and Gomorrah were and I can assure you that those cities are not burning now despite the fact the Bible says they burnt with eternal fire you see it was the consequence of the fire that was eternal not the fire itself when there's no fuel left to burn the fires went out in the book of Peter second Peter chapter 2 verse 6 we read and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what it says into ashes and condemn them to do destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Peter tells us here that Sodom and Gomorrah were reduced 
to ashes, that they were destroyed. Those cities are clearly not burning now, even though they suffered the fate of eternal punishment or eternal torment. Are you with me? You see, the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah was destruction, but it was to have etern- it was going to be eternal in its consequences. And that's all the Bible is talking about. The consequences of the destruction were eternal. All right, let's move on to another phrase. We hear this phrase of everlasting punishment. In fact, somebody may say, now, isn't it true? Didn't Jesus at one time talk about the reality of everlasting punishment? Well, yes, it is. It is true. But let's read the passage. Let's get it right. We go now to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46. And Jesus says, And these shall go away into everlasting what? Punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. And you say, there you are. There we have it. Jesus speaks about everlasting punishment. But let's look at the text carefully. Let's look at this verse more closely. Let's not just be surface readers. Let's look at it because it actually says, talking about the wicked, that they shall go away to everlasting punishment. And what's the reward of the righteous? They have everlasting life. Now, we've already seen this before where the righteous are destroyed. The righteous are given eternal life and the wicked are destroyed. The the righteous have the opportunity to live for eternity and the wicked cease to exist. This life and all its heartaches, all its pains, all its sufferings, all its disappointments, everything associated with this life, uh, the unfulfilled dreams, etc., etc. That's all the wicked are ever going to know. And that's the punishment for the wicked that they've ignored God, but for the righteous, because they've cooperated with God, they've not only had happier and more satisfactory and fulfilling lives here in this world, but they also now have the opportunity of an everlasting life, as the Bible says. But Jesus spoke about everlasting punishment. Now, did he say everlasting punishing? In other words, were they going to be punished on and on and on and on? No, he didn't say that. He said the consequences of the punishment, death, was going to be everlasting. So there's no second chance from that. There's no resurrection from that. There's no opportunity to repent from that. That's it. There's no second chance because it's the second death. But actually, when we have a look at what the Apostle Paul says on this same subject, Paul says this for us. He says, and to give you rest, oh, sorry, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So it's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul then says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not know the or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here comes the crucial, crucial verse. These shall be punished with everlasting, what? Destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So the punishment, which is everlasting, which Jesus refers to, the Apostle Paul says here in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, the punishment is destruction. They are destroyed and they can know and they will never experience the joy as it says in the last part of this passage. They will never experience the joy and the happiness that comes from dwelling in the presence and in the glory of God. That's why those people miss out. 
Jesus made it clear that the punishment of the wicked is death. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he says, For God so loved the world that God gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not what? Should not, thank you, should not perish, but have everlasting life. We read the same in the Old Testament. We've read what Paul says, but we also read the same in the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms, we read this. But the wicked shall, say it for me, Thank you, shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. Does the passage say there that they're tortured on and on and on in eternal fire with the flames being stoked by Satan and his demons? Does it say that? Does it say they cry out in agony, cursing and blaspheming God? No, it doesn't say anything of a thought sort. It says here they perish and they vanish into smoke because at the end of the thousand years they are destroyed. The little book Obadiah, it says, and they, referring to the wicked, and they shall be as though they had never been. That's clear. The wicked are destroyed. And I know this is starting to sound a little bit repetitious now, and almost to the point of redundant, but I do want to make the point clear. The Bible, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, enforces the belief, reinforces rather, the belief that the wicked simply cease to exist. That is their punishment. They die at the end. I read some words a little while ago, and I thought I'd just draw them to your attention. I don't know who the author was, uh, but I found these words anyway, and I thought I'd share them with you. It says, Satan the envious said with a sigh, Christians know more about hell than I. And it's true. Satan knows more, uh, the Christian church knows more about the reality in inverted commas, than Satan himself does. Now, mind you, Satan would love a place like that to exist. He would really love a place like that where he could exert authority unrestrained, where he could torture, where he could torment, where he could harass unrestrained, he and his fallen angels with him. But the reality is a place like that just doesn't exist. But Satan, as I said, would love that place to exist. He really would. And I'll tell you why. Because not only uh, would it be a place where he could enjoy and he could have freedom to torture men and women, because basically at the end, what Satan wants for every man, woman and child is their absolute destruction. Some people think, well, I'm going to serve God on this side, but I'm going to, other people say, I'm going to serve Satan, I'm going to go his way. But what you have to understand with Satan is that he wants to humiliate you, separate you away from God, and then destroy you, ruin you completely and destroy you. That's what he wants. Whereas God, on the other hand, God wants you to flourish. God wants you to grow. God wants you to have a full and happy life and then have the opportunity of eternal life where you can grow, flourish, and be happier even more in the life to come, unrestrained by sin, unencumbered by this earthly frame in which we have now. The Bible says we're given a new body, we're given a new mind, a new attitude. We don't have the natural drawings of sin. So the contrast is quite clear, isn't it? What Satan wants of you and what God uh, wants of you. I remember a number of years ago, in fact, it was 1996. 
And I was invited uh, to uh, the Baptist Church down at Randwick. And at that time in Sydney, there was uh, front page news about people being filled with the Holy Spirit and people being drunk on God. And so I thought that I would go down and I went down with uh, one of my colleagues and we went down to the Randwick Baptist Church or across to the Randwick Baptist Church and on a Wednesday night. And I suppose there was about 100 people there and the pastor got up and he spoke about about, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and how much God loves individuals and what Jesus was prepared to do for every person there in the room and for the whole of humanity. And he spoke quite eloquently and and his message was quite compelling. And I have to say that I was moved and I could tell the rest of the people in that church in that uh, that hall area were moved as well but then he went on to talk about how God deals with the wicked or should I say the way Jesus deals with the wicked and he went on to say that Jesus will say depart from me I never you knew you go out into the realms of outer darkness etc etc and there'll be wailing of gnashing of teeth and he went on to say how Jesus and the righteous will exult over the suffering of the wicked that it will be their their enjoyment for eternity and I can tell you it's felt like a sharp dagger went through the heart of every person in that meeting at first they're talking about the love and the mercy of goodness of God but then on the other side they're shown a capricious vindictive vengeful God who happily torments and tortures people for eternity even though they may have only lived for 10 sorry for 15 20 30, 40 or 50 years on this mortal coil, but still God's happy to torture them for eternity. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. And I thought to myself, how sad, how sad for these poor people because this man was their pastor. He was the one that they were listening to, were being guided in relation to who God was and who Jesus Christ. And they had this picture that God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit would gloat over the torture of the wicked. In fact, the Bible contradicts that directly. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23 and verse 32, we read this. God says, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? It's a rhetorical question. Does God? No, of course he doesn't. And not that he should return from his ways and live, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. The couple of points that I want to make here is that, as I've said before, every false teaching reflects badly on God. But further to this, there are a couple of truths hidden within this verse here. First of all, we realize all these verses that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Now, he didn't say, God didn't say the torturing of the wicked, did he? No, because God will destroy the wicked at the end of the thousand years. Revelation 20 verse 10 or 20 verse 9 says, Fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. There's nothing left of them. The other thing we read here, I have no pleasure in the death of him, saith the Lord. You see, God's not happy even with the death of the wicked. That's not what God wanted. God wanted men and women to grow, to know him, to love him, have a knowledge of him and to appreciate him and to respond to his invitations of grace. That's what God wanted. It gives God no pleasure whatsoever to have people destroyed uh, that their life cease. That's not God's plan at all. Every teaching that 
false teaching reflects badly on the character of God. And this pagan teaching, this teaching from Greek philosophy does exactly that. God dealing with the wicked is merciful. Remember what God does is he actually puts them to sleep. Just as a thought experiment, just as a little bit of fun now, just imagine... Uh, Jesus Christ has come. The righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, they're spending uh, the thousand years in, in heaven as the Bible uh, teaches. And then the Bible talks about God creating a new heaven and a new earth. But let's just imagine that as, as, as a part of God's universe, there's a place where the wicked actually still survive where the wicked are being tortured, where if you get close enough, you can smell the smoke of their torment. If you get even closer, you can hear men, women, boys and girls screaming and screeching in agony. Now, let me ask you something. Even if you were given eternal life and God was claiming that he was merciful, kind and just... Do you think the reality of a place like that would actually reflect badly on the character of God? Of course it would. Of course it would. Because that teaching is not found in the Bible and it's not going to happen. God deals with the wicked mercifully. He puts them to sleep. He puts them to sleep. You know, this teaching actually makes God the Father worse than Adolf Hitler. Makes him worse than Joseph Stalin. Even those men, after they'd finished torturing, experimenting on their victims, even they killed them at the end. But this makes God worse. Makes God more, more capricious, more, more disgusting than Stalin and Hitler. And the worst of criminals, no. That teaching has no place in the Bible. It's just a doctrine of the devil. The Bible doesn't teach about punishment going on and on. In fact, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. God puts them to sleep. He puts them out of of their misery. He says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is what it says and death is what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. You see, death is a real punishment because they miss the opportunity of living a happy, full and satisfying existence with God the Father. In Revelation 20 verse 10, we read this, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. First thing I want you to notice with this passage here, we've read it earlier, but Satan is not outside stoking the fires. He's inside and he will be destroyed. But we have this phrase at the end, they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, as I've said, we have an idea about forever and ever referring to an endless period of time. But depending on the context and particularly in our understanding of other biblical doctrines, we see that that is certainly not the case in specific situations. And this is one of them. For example, if we were to go back to the Old Testament, which we are going to do, we're we're going to see that forever is limited to just as long as a person shall live. In Exodus chapter 21, we're reading verses 2 to 6. It says, if thou buy a Hebrew servant, Six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she 
have borne him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. And he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall say plainly, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him into the judges. He shall also bring him to the door and unto the door posts. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him for how long? He says there that he shall serve him forever. So here, an Israelite, if a Jew decides that they want to stay with their master, they don't want to go out free, they appreciate the love and the care that they're receiving within that household, they can choose to remain. And the Bible says here that that servant will serve that, ma- that master forever. But how long is forever? Well, it's just as long as that person shall live. Uh, we read the same thing in the book of Samuel, in First Samuel. Hannah has been barren hasn't been able to have any children. Then God, uh, then she prays to God and she asks God, God, if you give me a child, I will dedicate him to you and he will serve you forever. But how long would that child uh, serve forever? Well, just as long as he lived. Let's read the passage now. I don't want you to believe me. Let's read the passage. And there abide forever as long as he liveth. That's in First uh, Samuel chapter 1, verses 22 and 28. The forever here is just as long as a person shall live. The same applies in the book of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the big fish, the large fish, the huge fish for, for, for what the Bible says forever. But let's find out what else the Bible says. It says in uh, Jonah chapter 2 verse 6, I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me for how long? He says, forever. Now, was Jonah in the bellies, uh, in the fish, fish's belly forever? Well, no. How do we know that? Because in the earlier chapter, chapter 1, verse 17, we read this. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. See, what we've actually seen here is that forever and ever is referring to a limited period of time. When we talk about the earth and we talk about the fire which consumes the earth at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand years, the fires go out. This is a clear teaching of the Bible. But in fact, it's uncharacteristic of God. The Bible actually says in Isaiah chapter 28 verse uh, 21, in his dealings with the wicked, it's his strange act because it's out of character for God. This is not what God wants to do, but he knows that it has to happen for sin to stop, for pedophilia to stop, for adultery to stop, for murder to stop. God knows that he has to intervene into this world or else men and women will destroy themselves. And then after the peers, the, the wicked's peers have reviewed each, case then the judgment comes the execution happens but the bible identifies it as god's strange act god doesn't get any joy god doesn't get any pleasure from that at all remember for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not what what's the word on the screens here should not perish but have everlasting life as i said the The result of weakness, rebellion against God is people die and that's all it means. Because God is holy, because God cannot tolerate and will not tolerate wickedness, sin, rebellion, God deals with 
the wicked. And the Bible says that he actually destroys the wicked. And then what God does, he uses fire to destroy the wicked because, as I've said before, fire is a great antiseptic. It's a great disinfectant. Despite the fact that some people teach that the destruction of the wicked by fire is proof that the wicked are tortured on and on and on and on. We've already seen now that the fire goes out because God has a wonderful plan for God's people in the last days because not only was did we see in the first three chapters of the Bible where Eden is lost, in the last three chapters of the Bible in the book of Revelation, we see that Eden is, restore, uh, is restored and God, uh, inspiring the apostle Peter, says these words, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The Bible promises a new earth and a new heaven where righteousness dwells, where the predisposition of every man, woman and child, the predisposition of all the beings that inhabit the vast unfalling universe will be to do good, to love kindness, to love mercy to love those things that are pleasing to God why because it's a reflection of God's character and they themselves in the life to come will be a walking examples of God's character there's no place for sin there's no place for suffering in the life to come the Bible is very clear that despite the fall in the beginning that God is going to restore this earth back to its Edenic beauty as described in Peter here described in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament and also described in the book of Revelation the reality is that God weeps over his runaway children and he has no joy in the destruction of the wicked at the end of the thousand years notice what it says in Ezekiel 18 32 for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord you see my mind could could never understand a loving God tormenting the wicked forever and ever and ever but my mind can understand a loving God who makes every effort to redeem to save to bring back his runaway children when Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives just on, uh, on the week of leading up to the crucifixion, the Bible says in, Ma- in the book of Matthew that Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he began to weep. And the Bible says he's, that Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long, how much have I longed to gather you in together as a mother hen gather, gathers her chickens beneath her wings, but you were not willing. You see, God is not eager for the destruction of the wicked. It's with a reluctant heart that he does that. And the problem is, as I said before, the sin problem has to be removed. Cruelty, child abuse, selfishness, jealousy, incest, suffering, murder, all these things have to be removed. But that American theologian, Samuel Hopkins, he was wrong. He was truly wrong. God takes no pleasure in the suffering of the wicked, as was already said. And in fact, the righteous will take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked either, because they themselves are a reflection of God's own character. And just as God is love, the righteous, when they are transformed, their whole natures are transformed to be love. They are mirrors of God. And so the destruction of the wicked uh, and the judgment of the wicked during the thousand years, and then the final execute, execution of the wicked at the end, does doesn't happen with the the sounds of applause ringing in the ears of God's people. No, indeed not. 
It's with sadness and it's with tears that the righteous and God and the heavenly beings witness the destruction of the wicked at the end. In the book of Isaiah, we read this. God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will what? Abundantly pardon. God wants everyone to be saved. That's the reality. God wants everyone to respond to him. And God's not going to say, wait a moment, there are certain conditions that you have to meet before I I, I accept you. That's not the case. Jesus says, come to me just as you are, just burdened with the sin and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus promised. The invitation is that Jesus Christ invites you, no matter who you are, to accept his offer of grace and he will accept you. And it's clear. It's simple and it's plain. That's what the Bible teaches. This whole idea that Satan and demons torment the wicked, it's a myth. It's a lie and it's not found in the Bible at all. Put up your hands if you understand now very clearly what the Bible teaches about the punishment of the wicked, that in fact they perish, they don't live on and on and on. God bless you all. God bless you. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Can you see that the character of God has been besmirched by this false teaching? It certainly has. One final question. Can you also see that God has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked? Does that make sense? Put up your hands if that makes sense to you. God bless you. And put up your other hand if this has encouraged you in your walk with God. Wonderful. Wonderful. God bless you all. God bless you all. All right, now next week, next week, we're looking at, is Genesis chapter 1 trustworthy? Let's face it, if the first chapter in the Bible can be subject to ridicule, then why should any person of a right and reasonable mind accept what the rest of the Bible actually has to say? They can't, can they? If the first chapter in Genesis is flawed, sorry, if the first chapter in the Bible is flawed, then we would naturally assume that there are other parts of the Bible which are flawed as well. But the Apostle Paul says that all Scripture is inspired by God. That means the first chapter of Genesis is inspired by God. So can we trust it? Is it trustworthy? So they're the questions that I'm going to be answering, or that is the question that I'm going to be answering next week. Now, for those people who have been uh, watching at home, watching this on the live stream uh, or on uh, YouTube, you can get all the material that we're sharing with the audience here in Melbourne by going to the website, which is on the screen at the moment theorchardmelbourne.org.au go to contact us and place all your details there and the request for the material that you're specifically after and we'll send them out to you no matter where you live anywhere in the world well our time has come to an end far too quickly now but why don't we bow our heads for prayer and we'll ask the lord's blessing upon our going home Father in heaven, we just thank you for this time that we've been able to have together as we've studied your word. 
We recognize your goodness and your mercy and your kindness upon each one of us. And even in your dealing with the wicked, we see how good you are, Father. You don't cause them to suffer for eternity. You just put them out of their misery. You put them to sleep. So we thank you, Father, that even in your dealing with the wicked, you are just and merciful. And I pray for each person here that we would each be the men and the women, the boys and the girls that you want us to be. Help us to honor you in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio.